Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History. Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain, and today, for a change, I'm visiting Shay Hart. Uh, that's Peter Hart's abode, and I'm surrounded by stuff. Pictures of Douglas Haig. Who? <laughs> that's the elderly gentleman on the wall. Oh, right, yeah. And the other you. elderly gentleman is my father. Oh, lovely. And the other elderly gentleman is my mother. <laughs> it's your mother. Excellent. We were always a strange family. Now, today, Pete, we're going to continue uh, what seems a very long-running series of podcasts on the Aris Air War. And today, (coughs) this is Airmen on the Ground, or Grounded Airmen. Grounded. Well-grounded. Now, this is because as the pilots returned from patrol... The work was only just beginning for the dedicated band of mechanics who made up their flight ground crew. These men, they're often forgotten in telling the tales of the air war, but it required painstaking efforts carried out to the highest possible standard to get the aircraft ready to fly again. We've said this before, when we look back, they look rickety old things held together with bits of wire but they were cutting-edge technology. They were for the time. Uh, and uh, and if you want to... There's no two ways about it. The life of the pilot and, and any crew in the aircraft, if there's an observer, it rests on whether they do their work well. That is, they've got to do it well, they've got to be diligent, and, and they've got to be skillful. So what sort of things would they do? Let's go through some of them. Right, well, the riggers, they'd repair any bullet holes in the uh, doped fabric covering. Uh, doped meaning... It's sort of doing a splosh on all over it to make it sort of hard. Make it dopey. Dopey, yeah. Uh, oh, you must have had a lot of that in your time. <laughs> they check all the manifold control and flying wires that operated the flaps and made sure that the aircraft was structurally sound. We just had a conversation about me not being able to pronounce words. Uh, and not liable to fall apart under the uh, stresses of combat. Yeah, because they flung them about the air. And although they were the, the height of modern technology, that doesn't mean they wouldn't fall apart. No, and unsurprisingly, the mechanics had the job of checking the engine from top to bottom. All moving parts were cleaned and oiled as appropriate. 
if problems were discerned in the smooth running of the engine, the fitters, they'd have to work all night in dimly lit hangars, struggling to completely overhaul the engine so it was fit for combat. Yeah, when they say dawn patrol, they make dawn patrol. And any mistakes uh, could doom a pilot. So if they put the sprocket where the flange grusset should go, that's going to cause a lot of problems. And the pilots, they simply had to place complete trust in their mechanics. And this is what Flight Lieutenant Robert Compton, who we've... uh, we've come across before, of eight naval squadrons, says. One of the essentials in successful single-seater fighting is confidence in the aeroplane. And one might truly say the morale of the squadron depends largely on this. In number eight, we had, without exception, the finest lot of men the Royal Naval Air Service could produce, drawn from every branch of trade, many of them ex-naval ratings. They all worked unsparingly unsparingly to keep our machines in good conditions. I say unsparingly. (laughs) He says it twice. (laughs) Advisedly, for the conditions under which they sometimes had to work were deplorable. Imagine nine inches of snow on the ground with icy wind blowing through many holes in a canvas Bessonneau hangar. The feel of the cold spanners and frozen oil. The making of delicate adjustments with hands numbed to the bone. Thus would our men willingly work if any one of us had come back from patrol and complained that his engine appeared a little rough. Truly, these men deserved our praise. With confidence did we trust them implicitly, knowing they realised that, although not spectacular... Their work was the foundation of all our hopes and victories. Without them, we could have achieved nothing. Mm. Well, we'll be touching on quite quite how uh, the the two sides looked at each other as we go on, because it's not quite as rosy as that, but there you go. Now, naturally, no real working relationship could expect us to survive without occasional friction. And uh, Not us, Gary. We never have friction. Or fiction. <laughs> Second Lieutenant Charles Smart found on two days running he had an irritating mechanical problem in winding in the aerial used to transmit their artillery observation corrections. He's a, he's a B2C man, isn't he? Yeah, Smart was not inclined to accept any nonsense from his flight sergeant on his return. And this is what Second Lieutenant Charles Smart of 16 Squadron RFC says. Had great trouble in winding in my aerial, the reel being very stiff. As I had complained about this yesterday, I took the flight sergeant to one side when I came down and asked why it hadn't been put right. He was inclined to be cheeky and said he hadn't time to attend to it. So I told him what I thought about him. He seemed rather hurt when I explained to him that the greatest risk he ran in this war was death from overeating. But he quite saw the point when I asked how he would like to fly the machine in half a gale and to have to wind in the aerial with the reel in its present state. I don't think I shall have any further trouble. But if the reel isn't right tomorrow, I'll have this chap arrested. Wow. Wow. So it's a bit of a a them and us tinge which could grow up to mark the relationship between a pilot and his ground crew. Yeah. Yeah. 
Now, the ground crew, they'd, they'd often roundly curse him behind his back for the state to which he wittingly or unwittingly reduced the aircraft by the time he returned it to its hangar. Well, you could just imagine that. I mean, if, if you know, you tell, oh, go have a good flight, sir. When he comes back, he's got holes all over the place. He's crocked the engine by over-revving it and everything needs a whole night's work. You can imagine them. What would you say if, if, I, if, if I did that to you? Yeah, but also there was an all-too-common sight of a group of mechanics often waiting beyond any logical hope for their pilot to return from a mission. And that showed that a very uh, clear bond, a very real affection could cross the social divide. Yeah, I think, yeah. So it's it's more complex than people make out. They don't all love each other. That There is the occasional friction, but underneath there's an underlying affection in most cases, and they do care about their pilots. They do, yeah. Now, talking of social divides... It's often forgotten that not all of the pilots and observers were commissioned officers. The sergeant pilots and observers had a strange ambivalent status. They certainly did. I mean, they'd fly together with the officers in 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 in, in a two man cream, the team cream team 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 team. So there'd be two of them, and one might be an officer and the other a sergeant, and they'd work as equals. But when they got the moment they set foot on ground, they'd be back in a the, the sergeant would be back in a complete state of subservience. Uh, and and you're going to be Sergeant George Eddington of Sixth Squadron RFC. We were all professional soldiers. I always said sir, and they always said sergeant to me. We had our job to do, and we did our job. I knew what time I was going up, but I didn't even know what job I was on until the observer came out. Always an officer. I said, good morning, sir, and we got on with our job. When we came down, he got out and went off to make his report. He did all the reporting, what he'd found and what he'd seen, what he'd photographed. I went to the sergeant's mess or sat down on the aerodrome and took the sun. I had no further contact. I couldn't make friends. I had nothing in common. I didn't have access to the officer's mess. I didn't know what they thought. In the sergeant's mess, they were all fitters and riggers. I wasn't in their world any more than they were in mine. Dreadfully lonely. Yeah, and some of them got quite bitter because, because they, I mean, loneliness can promote bitterness. And uh, But it's the lack of status. And they also used to get a lot of extra duties uh, uh, come their way. Uh, and, and this is the case for many of the ground crew as well. Uh, they, 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 they get binged for things. Uh, uh, and I'm going to be Air Mechanic Charles Byrne, uh, 3rd Naval Squadron, uh, RNES. And he says this. We used to kid ourselves. We were helping to win the war. But when you got down below them, but down below, he means on the ground, the Master of Arms used to say, have you cleaned your guns and loaded up the machine with bombs? We used to say, yes. Right, there's some roads want making and the latrines to clean. We were the dirty working party of the camp. Now, the AC, but Charlie Burns is a gunner. And, and so he has to fly up there and, and equal states of the officer, I suppose, in the air. But the moment he gets back on ground, he can't go and relax. Because he's not a pilot, so he has to go and... Well, I love the idea. Uh, men, who do those roads. Clean those latrines. It wasn't me, sir. Clean that latrine. In charge of forming a coherent team from a flight was ubiquitous flight commander. There were usually three flights, each with five or six officers, and a further rigger and fitter for each aircraft. The flight commander was responsible to the commanding officer for the condition of his aeroplanes. 
the fitness of his pilots and the welfare and efficiency of his men. And of course, he'd usually lead them in combat. Yeah, he would. He'd, so he'd be at the, at the point. Now, the squadron it under, would be under the overall command of a major. Um, if you think about how new and how rapidly expanding the RFC and RNA, RNAS are, there's not many who would have had pre-war experience at that sort of level. But uh, nevertheless, that they've got the job and they've, they've got quite a lot of... Well, they've got a degree of autonomy, haven't they? And 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 they 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 exercise a control over the character, the nature of the squadron. The Army Cooperation Corps squadrons had a more complicated tactical role, and many of their commanding officers were almost swamped by the all-enveloping paperwork generated by the complex liaison requirements of their work. Actually, that's quite logical if you think about that. You can, because uh, the, uh, the, they've got a lot of interaction with staff and things. They'll say, we want this photograph, this photograph, where's this photograph got? Uh, wh- what about the artillery? You're liaising with this battery. Tomorrow you're liaising with that battery. Oh, there's been emergency arrangements. And yes, there's a lot to... Whereas scout product things are more just get up there and do your job. Uh, that's simplifying. Uh, what, what other thing that might trouble the, the average... Uh, um, squadron leader was uh, was an inspection by a certain figure that we've had a whole podcast on. Who was that masked man, Gary? Well, they could be subject to an inspection visit from Brigadier General Hugh Trenchard, and he would usually be accompanied by Captain Morris Baring, who we've also come across before, and uh, he's quite an interesting character. He is. I mean, but I mean, the, the two of them are interesting, and they're a wonderful team. You've got. Boom, Trenchard. And this is a bit of a hint for when you read something. <laughs> by him. He's known as Boom because he had a booming great voice. Not not with the Yorkshire accent now. And he could be a bit of a bullying commander when the mood took him. He certainly could. And it, it, it was thus doubly ironic that this great man should be utterly at the mercy of his assistant, the illustrious Captain Maurice Baring. Now, he, he had a highly developed sense of humour, which he deployed with zest, whenever a harassed or bullied squadron leader appealed for retribution after an unmerited roasting from Trenchard. And I'm going to read what Recording Officer Lieutenant Thomas Marson of 56 Squadron said. He instituted a series of punishments numbered from 1 to 5x and varying in that order in degree of severity. Punishment number 1 consisted in taking away or hiding Boom's pipe. Punishment number five consisted in breaking the window of Boom's car, so they had to sit in a draft which he abhorred. I'm sorry, find that hilarious. Yeah, uh, it's just a wonderful relationship because because Baring was a very efficient assistant, and of course he was a famous. He's not famous now, but he was then very famous novelist. Uh, his books, I suspect, are unreadable now, but a bit like yours. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Oh, now, the combination of the committed I've, I've energy... To, I've gone suicidal. <laughs> ...direct methods of the overly blunt trenchard and the sophisticated yeah. wit of oh, Barry... Breaking a window, sophisticated <laughs> in your world, I <laughs> ...did a great deal to maintain a good relationship between the RFC headquarters and their hard-pressed squadrons in the field. Now, where are the squadrons? Well, they're scattered all around. They're behind the line. They're, they're well behind the British lines. Uh, they, they try and locate them close enough to villages or farms so, you know, so that the officers could be billeted in uh, houses, barns, whatever. But if not, then what, what are you looking for in an airfield? You want a flat field. Uh, and what happens if there's no building next to it? Well, then they'd simply had wooden huts built alongside them, which provided the accommodation. As usual, 
The men had a crowded communal existence, while the officers had both more space and a modicum of privacy. And uh, this is what 2nd Lieutenant Gordon Taylor of 66 Squadron says. I had a corner in the Nissan hut which housed the pilots of A flight, and to this I gave some individuality by building a low partition, virtually fencing me off in a small apartment of my own. This drew some acid comments from the other members of the flight, as if I was being standoffish. But it wasn't really that. I just liked to have my own quarters and to keep on the ground something of the isolation I felt in the air. Yeah, and, 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 and you, of course men couldn't do that. I mean, the men, they'd have less space. You, I mean, you know the space between beds. It hasn't changed much from when you were in the army. Um, there wouldn't be much space. There's no, you can't put up a partition. Officer had more space. It was possible. Still more than an Ibis hotel, though. Oh, don't talk about Ibis hotels. Uh, many felt the same way. They tried to turn the few square feet they were allowed into a home that reflected their personalities and interests. And I'm going to be Second Lieutenant Arthur Reese davids of 56 Squadron. Posh public schoolboy. My little den is about four or five yards long and about three across at the bottom. And I have got the sunny side of the hut looking out on the aerodrome, with a quaint little suburban garden in front consisting of a circular bed with some bedraggled daisies and violets in, and two outer beds with nothing in them at all except Mother Earth and some choice weeds. The man next door did it before I came in. Appalling effort. I've got all my photos up around the room and a row of books on an excellent felled-up wooden wicker table I have brought in the town where I first landed in France. Yeah, um, now, Rhys Davids, uh, he, he, he does come across as priggish and, and somewhat snobby in, in thing, but uh, interests vary, and, and ours is not to condemn more things. Uh, Rhys Davids, he would have uh, family photos, of improving books, Gary, which uh, would be... Cl- I'm sure you class miners need improving. <laughs> yeah, which was a bit of an echo of the university study, which he would have occupied, but for the advent of the war. That's right. But other men <laughs> had more prosaic requirements. And uh, once again, I'm going to be Second Lieutenant Gordon Taylor, 66 Squadron, RFC. To equip our quarters for really comfortable living and with some measure of individuality, we sometimes went to Amiens on shopping expeditions and brought such things as mats, chairs, small tables, pictures and bedside lamps. These small articles helped to make a temporary home of the bare huts. To them, we added in many cases glamorous pictures of the current Kirchner girls uh, and a well-chosen selection of illustrations from La Vie Parisienne. Individuality. That's how you say it, Pete. Oh, yeah. Thanks, mate. That's all right. Most were conscious of their relative good fortune compared to the infantry and artillery, of course, up to their knees in mud and blood just a few miles in front of them. Yet the incredible stress of flying over the lines brought with it physical and mental exhaustion and symptomatically the desire to spend as much time as possible in bed. <laughs> with a kerchief, a girl. Now, uh, as, oh. as, <laughs> as both corps and scout pilots are normally woken up at dawn, if not before, because the dawn patrol, uh, they, 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 what do you think they looked forward to <laughs> every morning at about, you know, just before dawn? What are they hoping for, Gary? Well, probably hoping for bad weather so that they couldn't fly. Yeah, they'd have absolute carte blanche there to sleep 
No qualms about dereliction of duty or anything. It's raining so they can have the time off. And they wouldn't be human without that. Uh, storm clouds raging, safe in bed. And this is what Lieutenant Stanton Waltho of the RFC said. The greatest joy I know is to be wakened after an all too short sleep by It's six o'clock, sir, but I don't think there'll be any flying. When a pilot starts his day thus, he manages to murmur, Is Captain Dash up? The batman goes to ascertain and returns with, No, sir, the patrols are washout. A still-tired head falls back onto a pillow, and a pleased airman mutters something about 9.30 and waking. <laughs> I love that idea. Anyway, three hours later, they, 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 they bestir themselves from their slumbers. Uh, now, the pilots officer pilots didn't have a lot to do when flying was possible and again you're going to be lieutenant stanton waltho everyone is late for breakfast and arrives in some futurist garb which consists usually of brilliant pajamas bright scarf flying boots and a grease ruined tunic most spend the morning sitting over the mess fire one or two discharge their duties as regards correspondence and the rest from their seats, remark at intervals, I must write some letters too. Perhaps a card game starts or two, one or two are sufficiently energetic to complete their toilet and walk over to see their machines. Now we're now going to have a short break. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
One duty that remained was censoring the letters written by the other ranks. This could be a mundane and dreary task, but occasionally they found some gentle amusement in the complex love lives of the men. And this is what Captain Bernard Rice of Eight Squadron says. Thank God! Do you know what's happened? Gladys is engaged! Hurrah! That's one less letter to censor. One sportsman of, of a fitter in my flight is conducting a correspondence with no less than six flappers. I, young ladies. And I see today he's written... Well, Flo, I'm pleased to hear Gladys is fixed up with Tom Fowler. Exit Miss Gladys from the gentleman's list. And added to, I presume, Tom Fowler's list. There you go. And when free, they'd normally gather in the officers' mess. That Would that be the offices? Yeah. Now, these bore little resemblance to the formal messes which typified the British Army in peacetime. That's right. I mean, the wards, there's a relaxation throughout the army. Uh, and especially in the RFC, again, this point, there aren't many senior officers. I mean, Trenchard had only been a lieutenant colonel at the start of the war. So there's not a great deal of a sense of seriousness, which you've know, you know, got a lieutenant general or, or, uh, or in, in, uh, hanging around. Um, so, as I say, commanding officer, just majors. And you're going to be one of our favourites, uh, Lieutenant... Cecil Lewis of 56 Squadron, RFC. Old, simple, whitewashed rooms with terrible old furniture and the food good but rough. Lamps hanging on strings from the ceiling, thick with dead flies and a general rudimentary primitive sort of life. Sometimes an old upright piano in the mess with keys so yellow they looked as if the keyboard had been smoking for about 50 years. And we had one chap who played the piano and he'd sit down in the evenings and there were two or three notes missing. It was out of tune and it was a terrible piano, but it didn't matter. He'd play the tunes of the time, the reviews of the time, the things we knew by heart. We used to sing in chorus. Occasionally, a bit of Chopin or something like that on the nights when we felt that sort of thing was appropriate. All very easy and go as you please. Now, so that gives you an idea. And uh, in some ways, the, the whole atmosphere in one of these RFC messes, officers' messes would be quite similar to those who are used to just just the time-honoured habits of, of the British male uh, when they gather together with nothing in particular to do. We are familiar with that, aren't we? We're doing it now. <laughs> Chatting to each other. And uh, uh, anyway, you're going to carry on. And this time you're, uh, uh, yeah, Lieutenant Stanton Waltho of the RFC. The old hands of the RFC sit around over coffee and discuss old members in familiar terms, referring to generals by pet names and talking of machines of which the newer members of the squadron had never heard. A card game or two commences, the Canadian element usually forming a poker school. We ground officers having by length of years and experience learnt the folly of the game, start bridge. Conversations round a flying corn mess fire are really wonderful. Almost invariably, these conversations start by the narration of an incident of the day, which is beaten by several others. A pilot will say, Well, A rolled at 150 feet today and came out so near the trees he almost brushed them with his undercarriage. Why, B will roll straight across an aerodrome at 100 feet, another will declare. I've seen him roll between two trees and finish lower than the top of them. At this, the first narrator becomes annoyed and with a perfectly serious face tells of C, who took off in a roll. 
with a series of groans, the discussion closes. And again, that's uh, well, uh, all of us, most of us, actually, are familiar with the the uh, the, aux- the auctionman sketch, right? <laughs> and that sort of beating each other. It's just uh, classic stuff. Uh, do you think everybody enjoyed that sort of, you know, uh, relentless old chap thing in the officer's mess? No, I mean, some of the more sensitive souls, like myself, would have found the relentless old chap atmosphere a little bit disheartening. And this is what 2nd Lieutenant Arthur Reese davids of 56th Squadron says. There are only one or two people in the squadron I have the faintest hope of making a real pal of, and it is next to impossible that I can even do that. They're all just the ordinary good fellows with nothing remarkable about them. None of them have any real intellectual ambitions. I'm not sure Reese Davis would have been popular in the mess. <laughs> no. And of course, the officers' mess offered the benefits of easy access to uh, something that you're occasionally fond of, Pete. I'm occasionally fond of it. Alcohol. And this is Lieutenant Frederick Powell of Forty Squadron. The centre of the squadron seemed to be in the bar. When you think of the tensions they lived through day to day, they would come in in the evening and ask about their best friend. Where's old George? Oh, he bought it this afternoon. Oh, heavens! The gloom would come, the morale would die, and the reaction was immediate. Well, come on, chaps, what are you going to have? <laughs> that was the sort of spirit that kept you going. And although people are against alcohol, I think that it played a magnificent part in keeping up morale. Keeps my morale up, Gary, when I very rarely get the chance to imbibe. Doesn't keep everything up, though, does it? It does keep everything up. Now, celebrations that could be triggered by a variety of circumstances, such as, for example, promotions, departures, successful missions, birthdays, almost anything would do if they were in the uh, mood to let loose. Yeah, and one of those who was often in the mood for this was Second Lieutenant Edward Manock, who was still in the early days of his career here, but he's 60 Squadron RFC. What does he say? Another rag in the mess, boxed with the burr, crocked my knee and arm. Old McKechnie's farewell uh, night as he's proceeding home tomorrow morning. Great doings. Returned to bed at 2am and to be called at 5.30. Went to St. Omer by sidecar at 6pm to fetch a new machine. He probably means 6am. Yeah. Uh, feeling like a wet rag. Mouth felt like the bottom of a parrot cage. I've never felt like that. I've always... Yes, I have. Very well, very frequent. Now, uh, the mess is also the natural habitat of the eccentric officer. Uh, who am I thinking of here, Gary, do you think? Well, you're thinking of uh, Major Robert Lorraine, who commanded 40 Squadron in early 1917. I am indeed. He'd been a reasonably well-known actor on the London stage. Uh, and uh, what would you say marked him out from his fellow Well, he'd certainly retained many of the affecta- affectations of his former incarnation, to the unconcealed delight of his young officers. I was hoping you'd trip over that. Uh, yeah, and this is again this Frederick Powell. Lorraine has just been promoted major, but of course, being an actor, the major on the stage always had an eyeglass. And who should acquire an eyeglass but, of course, Robert Lorraine. When I went on leave in London, I bought from Harrods a whole box of plain glass eyeglasses with broad black ribbons. When I returned to the squadron, I issued the ribbons and eyeglasses to the officers. That night at dinner, everybody wore an eyeglass. 
I must say that Lorraine took it in good part. He didn't comment at all. He didn't even try to say that he had a defective eye. <laughs> now, Lorraine, he, he was an energetic commanding officer who tried to entertain and distract his young officers. He drew on his own acting experiences and he decided to put on a show. This was to be no ordinary concert party affair, but a full-blown theatrical production. And once more, you're going to tell us what Lieutenant Frederick Powell of 40 Squadron says. We acted two unpublished plays by Bernard Shaw. And to our intense delight, who should arrive to stay with us for a week but Bernard Shaw himself? Lorraine at dinner said, we're doing a dress rehearsal for the men of one of your uh, plays, Shaw. I took Bernard Shaw down to the theatre and sat on a seat just behind him. I was worried to see that all the way through this play, he roared with laughter. He roared so much, he actually cried and brought out a handkerchief to wipe his eyes. In those days, he had a ginger beard, and I remember this beard wobbling up and down. It struck me at the time that it was extremely bad form for a playwright to laugh until he cried at his own comedy. When it was finished, I leant forward and said, I'm so glad, sir, that you appreciate our poor efforts at your play. He turned round, still wiping his eyes, and he said, Do you know, if I had thought it was going to be anything like that, I wouldn't have written it. <laughs> Fantastic. Ah, oh, fantastic. And another, another fabulous RFC eccentric was the irrepressible Major, well, Harvey Kelly. Now, he's the one who was the first member of the RFC to arrive in France. And there's a fantastic picture of him relaxing next to a, a big hay bale with a, a BTC uh, and he's smoking. There's petrol vapour all around him. Anyway, he he was sadly killed on the 29th of April, 1917. But just this quote from Recording Officer Lieutenant Thomas Marson, 56 Squadron, is, uh, just gives a summation of his character in just a few lines. When in France, he always took up with him in his machine a small bar of copper and a large potato. These, he said, in the event of his having a false landing in enemy territory, would ensure him a great reception... In fact, he would be the most popular person in Germany. And this is referring to the uh, the copper, the, the the minerals, and the food shortages. But it's a, it's such a shame that he was he wasn't uh, forced down. He was shot down and uh, killed. There you go. Now the big, nearest big town to most of uh, the airfields was Amiens, and it slowly attained the status of a great metropolis in their minds, promising easy access to all the simple pleasures that life could offer a young lad in his prime. What are these simple pleasures of which you speak? Well, Lieutenant Cecil Lewis of 56 Squadron describes them thus. We'd find some sort of an estaminet or restaurant, probably a girl or two around the place. We'd begin to have a drink or two and start singing songs and enjoying ourselves, whooping it up to, say, midnight, and then get into the tender and come back to the airfield again. Fantastic. Now, uh, one, one, one thing that's important is there's a couple of squadrons who did become notorious for drinking, especially in 1918. But, you know, we have all these tales of jollity drunkenness, but uh, this aspect it has to be kept in, in, in check and also kept in check in the way you think of these lads. Uh, are they all drunkards? Are they all just... Pissing it against the wall every night. Give me some perspective here. 
Well, no, in most RFC messes, drinking was mostly done in moderation, with the exception of the wilder guest nights and the occasional trip to Amiens. After all, ah. the Dawn Patrol meant just that. A bad hangover could be a life-threatening complaint. Yeah, this is, in, this is part of the whole dichotomy. Uh, I put that in for you to say, damn, but uh, <laughs> you tricked me. That, that underlays the whole of their daily lives. What, what is this dichotomy then? Well, the dichotomy is the need to adjust from normality to extremes of violent terror in a matter of minutes. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 that, which is, it, it's very difficult. Now, now, the pilot and observers of the RFC, I, I think of them as a brave crowd. I'm sure you do too, Gary. But there's no doubt that the strain told of them uh, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, month by month, because they're taking off. They're flying these dangerous missions over, over the lines. Uh, and uh, what, what do you think they resorted to? Well, in a lot of cases, it was uh, superstition, and some might say superstitious claptrap, Pete, in an effort to evade their demons. And this is what 2nd Lieutenant Norman McMillan of 45 Squadron says. The variety of forms of juju believed in and practiced were legion. There were those who would not drink unless a preliminary drop from the bottle had been spilled on the floor. And the bottle, when passed, had to go round with the sun. I round a certain way. They were a bit like port in an officer in an army mess. One might not say anything with certainty without touching wood, else the contrary would occur, or a run of good luck changed to evil. In almost every service camp, there was a certain ill-omened hut, tent, or bed. Something always happened to the men who slept there. The older squadron members would not sleep in a fated spot for a king's ransom. It was unlucky to go up in a machine with another man's mascot on board. Numberless crashes were instances proof of this. They would not sit down 13 at a table. They were unwilling to take up a bus with a number like 3523. Why, why Gary? Why it adds not? up to 13. Yep, adds up to 13. One man always turned round three times before getting into his bus, which is a bit like a dog before it goes to sleep. You remember the late great friend used to go round in little circles. Now, superstition was always an unreliable mistress. You're not allowed mistresses, are you? <laughs> I don't think any of us are. Now, this is what Lieutenant John Slesser of Five Squadron says. I know a few things more terrifying than to be alone in a BE, he means a, a Bellario Experimental, uh, with an observer, and to meet seven or eight enemy scouts. One feels so utterly hopeless as one has no field of fire, and anyway, only one gun and a maximum speed of 65 mile per hour, whereas your albatross has two guns and a speed of 130 mile per hour. Now, th this is interesting because, th th you see, that the point with superstition is it's not going to save you in the real world. And I think when you said superstition claptrap, you're entirely right. Um, the, the, you see, the men, they're not stupid. They're, they're basically trying to kid themselves. It's, it's in their own heads, and they're trying to make themselves feel better, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, because they can work out the odds of survival for themselves. One casualty a day might not seem very much to an infantry battalion of approximately 600 men. Oh, you'd be safe for a couple of years. But for a squadron of around 18 to 24 aircraft, it was nothing more than a looming death sentence. And this is what Lieutenant Harold Balfour of 43 Squadron says. 
We had some 32 officers in our squadron, pilots and officers. Uh, during February, March and April, we suffered heavy casualties. And in one of those months, we had 35 casualties out of our establishment of 32 officers. Now, you might think, how's that? Well, of course, they're constantly replacements. Replaced. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, horrific. I mean, they could see other people's look or other people's mascots, or they'd slept in the wrong bed, I suppose you could say, that run out uh, in machine gun fire and they could see their burning aircraft falling out of the sky. And, and how would they react? Well, every death brings their own death statistically closer. They can see it coming. And this is what Second Lieutenant Cecil Lewis, 56 Squadron, says. I sometimes think that courage is a material and expandable thing of which expendable, expendable thing of which men <laughs> are given so much. Sorry, I was thinking and of expendable <laughs> thing of which men are given so much. At first, they use it splendidly without thought. Then, as they sense the supply getting low, with greater and greater care, growing more and more nervous in the process. For only a fool could come back day after day with the evidence of enemy target practice all over his machine and not be affected by it. No. Now, we've made this point before. There's a certain amount of luck in that, isn't there? If, they, if your aircraft is hit in the wrong place, for example... It can catch fire. Or, you, or, or it could hit you. Um, um, a lot of the scout pilots found it a bit lonely, um, in the air, if you're on, if you're a scout pilot and not in a Bristol fighter, you're on your own. Uh, they've got no one to talk to, the, no communication between anywhere and anything. There's just you in that cockpit, uh, and uh, and and they also get lonely. They're just a lonely business, uh, and sometimes the mess didn't make up for it because the people you loved in the mess kept going away. When I say going away, I mean dying. And this is what Lieutenant Cecil Lewis again says: People were being killed every day. My best friend was there one evening and he wasn't there the next day at lunch. This was going on all the time. People reacted to that. You couldn't live that sort of a life and be entirely indifferent. You may have been cold-blooded in the air because you had to fight as if there was nothing but you and your guns. You had nobody at your side. Nobody who was cheering with you. Nobody to look after it if you were hit. You fought alone and died alone. Uh, I think that's quite. quite uh, I think that sums it up, really. Now, we've uh, a lot of this one was about uh, being on the ground, and uh, we've got one more episode to go, haven't we? Uh, we've got the May fighting, and then that's the end of the air war over Arras or whatever it was called, the series. And uh, if you want to know more, then there's my book, Bloody April. It would have been a lot better and been a bestseller if it had been called what I wanted to call it. What was that, Gary? Can you remember? Up the Arras. That would have been the perfect book. It would have got so many other interest groups. Yeah, well, I've noticed today, Pete, it's largely been about our inability to pronounce words because we both made a bit of a pig's ear today. We so have. I think we should apologise unreservedly to our dear listeners. I apologise to you all. And uh, look forward to the final episode of the series, which is called what, Pete? Uh, I don't know. May something. May be the end. Yeah. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PG. 
MH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?